Hello and welcome to Virtual Philanthropy. I'm your host, EJ Jacobs. Virtual Philanthropy is a virtual tour of the philanthropic process led by someone in philanthropy in an effort to demystify the process of going from prospective grantee partner to actual grantee partner. Today's person in philanthropy is Swati Deepak with the Within Four Girls Collective. Hello, Swati, and welcome. Hey, EJ. Thank you so much for inviting me onto this podcast. Thank you very much for taking and accepting the, the invitation. And it was not very easy to sort of map out how you do your funding to would-be grantees because it can be interpreted so many different ways. So I thank you for putting yourself <laughs> in the firing line there. <laughs> so before we begin, do you want to just sort of tell us about yourself a bit? Sure. So um, as you just said, I'm currently director of the With and For Girls Collective, which is a really exciting collaboration of nine different funders. Uh, we came together in 2014 uh, to launch a new awards program, which was about recognizing work on girl-led, girl-centered organizations around the world. Um, rewarding them with a an award that also enabled them to access unrestricted funding, um, visibility, uh, capacity building support from us as a collective. Um, prior just to that, just made a bunch of new friends when you said unrestricted funding. <laughs> there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's definitely we know from our um, our award winners that unrestricted funding is gold dust and it's sad that we're still you know one of only 0.1 percent of funders in the space that actually know and understand and recognize the value of unrestricted funding um prior to that i was director of stars foundation which was a private philanthropic foundation that actually uh, started and hosted um the with and for girls collective as well as the impact awards and the global rising stars program um, and I've sort of jumped around the sector quite a lot, which is why I hopefully think I might be helpful for listeners to your podcast, because I've spent actually a lot of my time being a fundraiser or within resource mobilization. So right from working in student volunteering organizations when I was still at university, right through to kind of managing the big um contracts uh, from USAID or DFID uh, and large-scale funders for the likes of big INGOs like International Planned Parenthood, Mary Stopes or UNICEF. So I feel I've entered philanthropy from being very much on the side of a lot of the listeners to this. Is there something that was sort of a big aha for you coming from the non-profit side to the philanthropic sector? I think it was really, it just reaffirmed to me how important relationship building really is in either space. Um, I think one of the things I really realized in working with um, private philanthropy is that there's much more of an appetite for risk, reactiveness and opportunity, which you definitely don't see when you work in the government space, which is very ordered. It's about complying to rules and regulations, um, you know, only answering things within certain time frames and being able to, I guess, stunt your language in some way. So an aha moment for me was really around um, just realising that there is so much um, want to actively work with the sector. Brilliant. Well, before we get into the meat of the actual tour, I allow all the donors who come on to do a shameless plug. So here's your shameless plug moment. What would you like to plug for us? So I would definitely uh, plug to everyone listening that um, we know that adolescent girls stand um, and work at the intersections of all of the structural problems um, for age uh, and for gender. Uh, for those of us that are interested in children and young people's rights or even gender equality, girls 
and adolescent girls sit at the centre of that. They are under-recognised, they're underfunded, and they're underestimated. And my shameless plug because of that is the work that we do as the With and For Girls Collective. We are nine different organisations and growing with new partners um, as we grow. And it's really about making sure that those in the development and in the philanthropic sector know that girls are already organising. We're not doing anything special. Girls have always been doing something in their communities they're not sitting there helpless um, but philanthropy has been helpless to actually support them and so I would plug and encourage everybody to look at how their funding can go directly to groups led by girls themselves. Brilliant it's not too shameless actually it's something you should be quite proud of um, so without further ado take us on the tour how do we become person who really wants to get to know Swati and gets to know Within Four Girls, uh, even at your time at Stars Foundation, how do we go from person who wants to be considered to be a grantee to actual grantee? What's the first step? What's that major step? And what's the sort of finishing line step there? So, I mean, people come into our awards programs from various different walks. Um, but I think one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is that we are an organisation that works very much with the field and the sector uh, to source and find organisations. Um, so you're not going to be able to um, meet with me or or people in my team and that lead to a, a funding proposal um, and then a, a receipt of funding from us. It's really about that relationship that we would then uh, build with you through our process. So we, every year when we launch our awards program, we uh, recruit referral partners. So these are other funders, their other networks, their previous winners of the awards, um, other grassroots groups, networks, things like women's funds or community foundations. And we actually trust them because we're a foundation um, and a collective that's based in London. What do we know about the organizations in Kenya or Sierra Leone or India or Nicaragua? And so for us as a foundation, it's really about us building relationships with other funders and with other people within the development and the community or the grassroots space. Those organizations nominate um, grassroots and, and potential grantees to us. And they, you know, recognize them for being exceptional um, in working with and for girls or working on children and young people's rights in, this, in the case of STARS Foundation. Um, and really for us, that's the first step. You can definitely meet um, members of the team at events. Um, we're always really excited to hear what people are doing, what they're working on in the sector and the field. Um, but what we will always do is direct you to other referral partners that you might already be being funded by, you might already be in the network of. And if not, this is an opportunity for you to look at, okay, who's on our referral partner list and should we update it? Are there funders and networks that you're a part of that aren't on our um, referral partner list that we should be talking to? Um, and we will work through that mechanism. So we wouldn't take any nominations ourselves or we don't nominate as stars or as members of the team or even members of the board or the strategic partners. We only work through our referral partner networks. 
And they then, with with them for girls, they come through the referral partner process. We make sure that they meet our eligibility. So we have uh, three different categories of your income levels. So we have our large category awards, uh, which is organizations that are turning over um, between $50,000 and $500,000. We have groups that are then in the smaller category, which are turning over between $17,000 and $50,000. And this year, we're really excited. We're just relaunching the With and For Girls Awards um, in uh, the second quarter of 2019. um, And we're going to a much smaller award. So organizations that may be unregistered, they may be unbanked um, and have got incomes uh, below 17,000. Sounded very much like another shameless plug. I'm putting on my my sort of non-profit hat for the startup who has no connections to anyone but's yeah. doing great work with girls in some rural area uh, where they don't have the contacts. How do they actually make that first step into getting in front of someone like you? I think they can always email. Um, we have an info app that's attended to by our whole team gets alerts as to what's going in. So I think sometimes uh, it might seem like coming to individual members of the team is uh, is the kind of easiest or most direct routes. Um, but, you know, some of us are traveling, some of us are on annual leave or just going through those sort of busy periods. And so what we always make sure of is that the info at email address is a go into everybody's inbox so that we know that a response will go out to somebody within uh, a certain period of time and we all take that as shared responsibilities across the organization Um, so really it's about getting in touch with us through that Uh, we do have all of our FAQs up on our website um, and they appear in multiple languages as well so we do have them in our languages of English French Spanish Russian and Arabic Um, so it allows you to be able to kind of access from those mechanisms Um, but really you could also ask our referral partners we do spend a lot of time we sign memorandums of understanding with all of our referral partners and they're the ones that really tell us who are the groups that are working great on these issues at that kind of grassroots level and you mentioned uh, FAQ I think this is probably one of the most underlooked areas of a website people sort of look at who you're funding when's your next RFP and what are some of the things that you th- you wish people sort of focused on that, that are actually in your FAQs so I think for us like what we often see is that you know organizations uh, take a lot of time to uh, to read about the work that we're doing they obviously see an alignment to what we're doing but they don't um, necessarily look at all the details of exactly how we source our grantees which is through a closed process um, and and these referral partners and the reason that we do that is because as I said our expertise doesn't stand in in being able to source all those organizations we trust the development space and the network and we're always open to having new referral partners come on board um, and what often happens and and you sort of really feel for the organizations who do this is they've gone through they've had a look and they put together a really beautiful proposal um, about why they should be a winner of one of our awards uh, and they'll send that through to our info at um, or one of the individual members of the team that they might have met um, and that just feels like you know uh, we just wish that they had used their time 
sort of more effectively to reach us because we know how much and you know I know how much work goes into putting those proposals together and you just worry that organizations have you know misused or not not um, allocated their time to really like be responsive to your mechanisms and that they've spent all that time putting together a beautiful proposal that because our processes aren't designed in that way we're not able to really respond to them and so whether you sent us an email asking us or whether you sent a proposal, our answer in both instances is that we work through a referral partner process and it's much more likely that you go and speak to them and that you get nominated. And when we ask you then um, for an EOI, that's at the point that you would then respond to us after that nomination period has happened. When someone actually reaches the process where they've been referred and they've been sort of approved, what gets them to that final hurdle? Who, what separates the, the winners from the almost winners? So I think for us with With and For Girls, what we're really looking for is we're not looking at thematics. We're not looking at how great you are in ending child marriage or getting girls to school or giving girls access to sexual reproductive health or legal empowerment. The main criteria is that you are a grassroots organisation and that you are either led by adolescent girls. And we have some winners where the oldest member of the whole team in the organisation is 17 years old, which just blows your mind. Or we also recognise groups that may be led by adults, maybe working across multiple issues that include boys' work, that includes work for widely youth or even families um, and older adults in the community. But the programmes that they work on that are led by, that are focused on girls, should demonstrate that they are managed and led by girls. And really, that's our only criteria for the With and For Girls Award, is the income level, a demonstration of whether you are truly grassroots, so you're not affiliated or registered with you know a former Peace Corps volunteer in the US or someone who's based out in um, Europe but you are truly rooted in that community and that you really hold girls leadership um, in designing the programs in evaluating in the finance decisions and that's what we try and really lift out Um, what we also do is we have a two-stage process once you've been nominated so after a nomination comes through these three criteria are checked by our team if there's any issues around trying to check it we will come back to you and then we let you know about the whole timeline process. So we'll say that our timeline takes X amount of months. These are stages that you would need to go through. Um, Again, we communicate in all of the official languages that we work on. We've also had a number of applicants that are illiterate and don't have access to it. So we do do WhatsApp messages and calls with people um, who might need a a bit of additional support to to their work. Um, But really what happens is they then come through, we then have a first stage panel which is panels of all the members of the with and for girls collective so that is staff from um, the with and for girls team that i'm a part of at purposeful uh, from global fund for children from empower from mama cash from frida the young feminist fund from comic relief from nike foundation from novo foundation Um, representatives were all split up by the five regions of the world um, and our award is totally global so there is not one country in the world we won't fund in we will fund everywhere where there's an exceptional program uh, that meets our criteria 
And we go through and, and, and look at the EOIs that have come back from the organizations to really demonstrate how they are girl-led, how they are grassroots in their approach. And we put forward a shortlist um, of each region. We do a shortlist of around 10. Sometimes it exceeds that if there's just a, a brilliant pool that year. Um, and then what we do is really exciting. We then um, actually recruit panels of adolescent girls in each of the five regions of the world. So one for Europe and Central Asia, one for Middle East, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia Pacific and the Americas. Um, and those girls are trained in what With and For Girls is about and what girl leadership looks like um, for them. They define that per the region. And those shortlisted organizations that the first panels have worked through, um, actually the girls then ask all of the shortlisted organizations to submit visual applications. And this for them is a real chance and for us and the whole process to really center the girls and to be taken away from people that can write great applications and the sophisticated fundraisers that are out there. Because what the girls assess is they don't assess the EOIs and the brilliant writing that might be written in Spanish or French or English. They want to see how a girl centered in your work and that could be done by posters, by photos, by videos, by spoken word and poetry um, but the girls want to receive something that is developed by the girls of your organization and then they will interview each of the shortlisted organizations in their region um, we get them interpreters when they might not be able to speak and you need to speak in your local language that all happens and we do it by skype we do provide support for those that might not have access to um, computers to do that just so it's an accessible process but really what we see happening there is the girls always pick the winners who have girls on the other side of that um, that meeting or, or that uh, interview process. It must take some pressure off you as well that you're not sort of picking in some room that nobody knows in with a, a group of people who are shrouded in, in some sort of uh, shadows. You actually have young girls who are actually picking the winners, obviously the name within four girls, but that sort of takes the pressure of you to sort of be authentic because yeah, it's right there. Absolutely. And I think one of the things, and I know that I've spoken to you about this, EJ, is that, you know, it, it really strikes me that a lot of people say, God, that's so revolutionary to put girls in the <laughs> yeah. driving seats of philanthropy and get them to make decisions. But I just, one of the things we always say is, why is it revolutionary? Like, girls are the best decision makers on issues that affect their lives. They are the ones that know the realities. And when we see the girls coming together and interviewing and speaking to other girls across their region, across multiple languages, using interpreters, what you see is pure magic. And the discussion that they have is a lot more refined than one that you would see in panels of other experienced quote unquote philanthropists or grant <laughs> yes. makers. Um, and I would say I've learned a lot more from just witnessing and hearing or listening in on girls panels uh, than I have on multiple donor panels that I've been a part of with other foundations. Their level of insights and their ability to really say, well, those girls felt really empowered um, to say the truth. Like when we question them, 
about what was right or wrong in their organization. They could be totally authentic rather than kind of give side eyes to the director who might be sat behind the screen. Um, and so there's just a level of critical analysis that the girls bring, which is just, um, I don't know whether it necessarily takes the heat off, but it's definitely about shifting power um, and something that we should all be doing in philanthropy. You have mentioned that to me, and I've also had in my in my time in philanthropy as well. I think the the running theme for many traditional funders is it's too good to be true. But how many things that we leave behind that are actually too good that don't get funded just because we think they're just too good to be true? It just seems too simple. It seems too easy, and then we go out there and pick lower hanging fruit. So <laughs> it doesn't always work the way we think it should work. And um, I, I you touched upon the rounds, and this is something that I know many many fundraisers and many grantees struggle with is how many rounds they should go through in order to get an award, whether it's an annual award or whether it's a grant that sort of takes many cycles to, to actually mm. be processed. How many do you think is too much and how many do you think is just just the amount, the right I, amount? I mean, for us, uh, ideally, we would like to have sort of a, a one-stage process. Um, but I think what we're just cognizant of is that you know, when you're moving money from philanthropy, there's a whole risk aversion that you get from your boards and to uh, actually, I know. Um, and so I think what a lot of um, grassroots organizations don't necessarily, um, I guess, recognize is just that level of like due diligence that has to take place, which is about satisfying your board, satisfying your accountants, satisfying your auditors, satisfying accountability groups such as the charity committee in the UK or the kind of tax um, framework that advises on the 5013Cs um, in the US. And I think with uh, that, you know, there's just a lot of data that we have to collect to be really assured that this money will be spent charitably because there's a lot of tax implications and I'm sure no one uh, wants to get in trouble with the tax man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then for us, you know, we've we believe in the two stage process because what we really want to do is whilst we want to give all the decision making to girls and it would be great if we didn't have the first stage panel. I think one of the things that we recognize is that girls should just be allowed to be girls. And if we need to collect certain amounts of data that we need for all of these additional accountability bodies, it seems really lazy on our perspective to just give girls EOIs and expect them to go through it and expect them to assess things that we should take the responsibility for. They are the boring sides of doing grant making. And for us, it's not about girls having to take that responsibility. They should be there assessing the core thing that they're aware of. And we need to be aware of their time as well. We want them to feel that this is a great opportunity for them, that they can engage at a small level to make big decisions um, and I think it's just reflective of what we see as girls leading and, and uh, girls being centered in their communities they don't want to do things how traditional philanthropy has been structured or traditional development have been structured a lot of our groups actively reject civil society structures they don't want to be registered not because they can't be um, but they're like we don't want to look like an NGO because it means we'll then have to behave like an NGO so we also have to be aware that if we want to involve them in philanthropy we need to rethink the way that they get involved and not just have them sit in and mimic the structures that we already have in place. 
I want to go into the next part, which is uh, mistaken identity. <laughs> so when a nonprofit or fundraiser sort of mistakes you for a direct donor or as a donor who can support what, what they want to have funded, what do you do? How do you get out of that situation? How do you address that situation uh, as responsibly as you possibly can? I think what I always say is that I don't make the decisions, neither does anyone in the collective or the team. The girls make the decisions. So um, if you really, truly believe that you are girl-led and girl-centered, then please, like, we can direct you to the ways of entering the nomination process. We can tell you about the referral partners that there are, but also tell us the ones that should be on that list, and we will recruit them in as um, as referral partners. But really, the decision-making sits with the girls. They're the ones that will interview girls in your organizations uh, and members of your team, and they make the decision. Uh, we don't influence the way that their decisions are made at all. It's really for them to assess. They create their own um, assessments, their own judgments. Um, and believe me, they are a lot smarter um, than a lot of people that I've come across within this sector. So I always say to people, you know, you can charm us as much as you want, but... Um, <laughs> But actually, it's the girls that make the decisions. And if you're truly girl-centered and girl-led, you will win an award at some point. Do you feel like there's some sort of responsibility for donors who fund in such niche areas to sort of have a portfolio or Rolodex of donors for when grantees like this come or potential grantees or fundraisers come to us and say, we'd love to be funded by you. And you go, well, you're not really a good fit for us. But here's ABC to look at. Do you think we should have sort of a cache of ABC at the ready for these people? Do you feel like you should only be responsible for what you're able to do within your organization? I think we always do say some of the other funders that are there. I think because we're a collaborative of funders as well. Um, all of us have our own separate grant-making portfolios that sit outside with and for girls. So I'll say, well, how, do you know about Empower or Comic Relief or Novo Foundation if, if the work really aligns with them? And there is information and there's links to get to those organizations um, on our site. Uh, but one of the other things that we also encourage is signing up to our newsletter as well. Um, we give updates on what our winners are up to, what's happening in the field, but we always share um, funding opportunities as well because we want to give that opportunity to our winners and those in our networks, but it can also be really helpful for organizations that um, you know, might be sitting within our process, might want to try and get to the process, but I think you know, we definitely should do that. I also think in not just um, signposting people to, to other funders is the right way. I think it's also just providing really clear feedback. Um, another thing that we really pride ourselves on, uh, both that we did within STARS and also within With and For Girls, is that um, our team write very comprehensive feedback letters uh, to organizations that are nominated or go through the different rounds and don't make it through. And actually, we uh, did an external evaluation um, and we actually found that a number of groups uh, that have won the awards were initially, um, they didn't get through in previous years, but actually from going through and addressing some of the feedback, they were then able to be re-nominated a following year and make it through the process and win um, the awards. And I think from what we've heard from a lot of them is that they... Um, 
they really appreciated. Uh, they really thought that they were girl-led or girl-centered, but the fact that the feedback came back saying, well, you're not really strong in these areas and you might want to consider that. It's not about necessarily turning an organization to behave in a way that it shouldn't, but it's about recognizing that if they think they're being really great at something, what's the feedback from girls? What's the feedback from those that are working in the space? And how do they measure up against others um, that are working in that? And what more can they be doing? Because I think... For us, it's also about trying to make sure that in communities and in um, initiatives where girls should absolutely be leading and absolutely be centred, if organisations are kind of saying that they are but can't demonstrate it, I think that's also like a point for us to say, well, if you do want to win this award, there are other things that you could be demonstrating or working on. And it's not providing a tick box list, but it's getting them to critically think about the way that they're doing that. I'm thinking about you saying that you actually mentioned a number of organizations and I almost know exactly what comes after that, which of course is, would you be willing to make an introduction and do an intro email? I'm sure you get that, that question <laughs> quite often. <laughs> I used to get it all the time. Uh, what's your response to that? Because it's quite difficult and I, I know I have my own response, but what do you say to people when they ask you to make an intro directly because they want that extra in with the foundation that you're mentioning? I always ask for them to... Um, I agree. I think it's sometimes, and it really just depends on your own workload sometimes. I think sometimes I can definitely be responsive to all of that and sometimes I can't. And I think that's just the um, the pitfalls of being a human with just the same hours uh, in the day as everybody else. Um, but I think when I found that to be really helpful is I've always asked the organization, please don't send me reams and reams of paper. Don't send me a really long um, message please just outline for me in a few bullet points these areas and I can just forward on that with an introduction to uh, to a funder. And that then allows me to streamline my own time. Um, and I think as well, it just allows for the organisation to think about what it really uh, is at the heart of what they want to say rather than this is the history and the background and all the kind of bits of the organisation, um, which I think sometimes is just not... Uh, it, it's so much work for the organization and I worry that it doesn't necessarily get the response or uh, necessitate the, the response that they really want from that. So I will sort of jump to the next section and just ask you for a couple of do's and don'ts uh, for nonprofits listening out there, whether they are nonprofits that would come to you specifically. Well, now we know to not <laughs> come to you specifically, but go to your referral program, uh, your referral partners. But uh, what's the advice you would give them in terms of do's and don'ts? So I think I definitely have a read of um, the details um, that are given in the frequently asked questions, um, just so you're really clear on exactly what our, our, what our process looks like. Please do email if any of that seems unclear. Um, the team is always on hand to respond to that. We do take calls to just help you understand the process as well. And when we're launching the awards, we do hold kind of webinars or Q&A sessions. So please join those. Um, I think another do is sign up to newsletters, uh, follow funders on um, social media as well. Being within um, a fundraising background myself, I think I gained so much more knowledge about how donors were thinking what was really picking them up, um, what was really exciting them just by actually following them on social media. So on what are they doing on Twitter or Instagram um, and just, you know, that gives a different level of personality that isn't there in frequently asked questions or is there on official websites. So I think that's definitely another do. 
I think don'ts are don't just send a, a proposal straight to us. I think it's uh, it it just feels like you've spent so much time doing something that we're not able to do something with purely because of the way that we work. Um, so I would reserve your time and energy. Um, there are some funders who might accept that, but in my experience, a lot of them want to have a conversation with you. They want to understand what you're doing beforehand. And so I just think that sending a blanket proposal in your very first email to a, a kind of an info at type of email address is not the, <laughs> not the right thing to do. Um, I would also say don't uh, chase the funding and I know that's easier to say and it's much harder I know how hard it is um, I've been in teams before I was uh, um, in philanthropy where you know you've just got to hit your targets and you've got to bank the money otherwise people on payroll don't get paid uh, your work doesn't happen and there's a tremendous amount of pressure on that um, but I think staying authentic to the work that you do and being responsive to people that are in your community is the absolute best way to go and there are funders out there that are willing to kind of support that work but I think you know looking at a change in the sector being like oh well now people want to do livelihoods and now people want to do child marriage and we should be doing all of these things I think stretches your organization quite thinly that's one other kind of don't um and I guess another do is please give us feedback as funders um, whether, you know, I think that it's really helpful to kind of, and I really appreciate that you've opened up a forum for kind of, I guess, anonymized dialogue between uh, fundraisers or NGOs. Well, and now we know who sector. you are, it's not anonymous anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the questions may be. Um, but I think that that dialogue is really important because, you know, we, it's not that we don't want to be transparent in our processes, but I think without really honest uh, feedback, we're just never going to be aware of how we can really um, improve and be responsive to that work. Um, so I would say, please do give feedback on the processes. Please do ask for feedback um, when uh, the outcome might not be successful. Um, look at what opportunities there are for you to engage um, and really do orientate yourself on certain funders. It takes time, but sometimes those relationships do end up being successful in the long term. And I, just before we reach to the next area, I just have a question there because you've mentioned about your extensive background in the nonprofit sector. And I've noticed that quite a few foundations actually hire from the nonprofit sector. However, many of the problems that we still have in terms of understanding the, the problems that nonprofits have still exist. Yeah. So why is that happening? I'm a bit of a unicorn where I didn't come into philanthropy from the nonprofit sector. So I don't know why that switch doesn't get made. Mm. Uh, why do you feel like many of the problems around core funding, around understanding the process of a grant cycle where many of the problems that nonprofits complain about still exist, even though many people running philanthropy at the moment, at least institutional philanthropy, come from a nonprofit background? Yeah, I, I ask myself the very same <laughs> questions, to be really honest. Um, I think one of the things that I, and I, I said it at the beginning as well, like we are one of the very few organizations that want to put 
the the girls themselves in the decision making of where our power sits as as grant makers or as funders we want to give unrestricted funding and we do it through an award because we want these organizations to be visible it's not us saying well we're funding these grantees but we're not going to tell you about it and we're not going to tell you that we're funding this we want more people to see these organizations and to know the incredible work that they're doing so that that enables them to get further funding and i think there is a swell of people that have come from civil society that go into philanthropy, but I think what ends up happening is people just go in and and um, maybe I'll get blasted for saying this, but I think there's a lot of just incrementalists, people who want to push a little bit to make our sector different and to try and rebalance and readdress power. And I think what I often find is, you know, being an organisation that's funding girls, um, that's giving unrestricted funding, that's giving girls the decision-making power, we get a lot of, oh, well, that's really cute. That's really cool. It's <laughs> yeah. really cute. It's really on point. Girl power, like, and, you know, there's this sort of hierarchy of like, well, they're not really doing like the real work that we're doing. We're doing the serious philanthropy. It's a um, hashtag. It's not an actual impact. Yeah. And I think, you know, the reality is, is that the, the groups that are doing the really innovative um, work in this field are the smaller funders. They're not the kind of big, large institutions because they're kind of wrapped up in hierarchies and power structures um, that mimic power structures that exist within the wider world. Um, and so my question back on the cuteness is always like, you just don't know the severity of situations and the work that girls are doing. If you think, or you're so crass to think that girls' work is cute when actually Girls are putting their lives on the line for the work they do. And actually, they face a, a security level that adults don't because for some of them, being queer and having relationships in their community, which is an absolute fundamental human right for them, in their country is extremely, extremely dangerous to hold. And it's one that they can't even share with their family. They're like a 16-year-old that has to has has found a group and a movement that it's a part of, uh, that they're a part of. Um, but they can't go home and own their identity. And there's a whole level of complexity in the work that they do, which is definitely not cute. Um, so yeah, I I would love our sector to not be so incrementalist and and look at slower term change. Um, I would love more bigger philanthropists to be and bigger philanthropic foundations to take much bolder risks with what we're doing because the work of organisations at the grassroots is completely. Um, surrounded by risk. They take risks every day in the work that they do. And the fact that we don't even have the the courage to be bolder in the way that we fund um, and that we stay within our risk-averse bubbles, to me, is just a missed opportunity because there is one way that we can effectively use power and it's to be a little bit more radical and risk-taking with the work that we fund. I think that's a perfect parallel that you've, you've painted there where we're comparing risking your life with risking money and not even money that's going to basically hurt your wallet. As someone said in, the, in, in my book, it's really about money you've already put out there to 
try something, try something new. And yeah. the risk that you're taking can't be measured against the risk that someone's taking with their lives. Yeah. So I think to have you reiterate that is, is brilliant. Yeah. Um, I think just another reaction please. on that is that's really why I think coming together in collaboratives with other funders we've seen has really worked. So if you take, for example, the members of the With and For Girls Collective, there are a number of us that have been working at the grassroots level that have been working on unrestricted core funding to those small groups. Um, but really, you know, some of the, the larger funders that are members of, of the collective, they hadn't been doing that. They hadn't been funding um, unrestricted or core funding, um, but they recognize that they should be. And what's different from engaging in a collaborative or a collective with other funders is that you're not just funding an intermediary and saying, well, you can get on with the work. You've got to be just, you've got to be present at the table with all the funders deciding how our frameworks look like, listening to the feedback um, centering girls within the work that you do and what we've really seen from that is that a number of the foundations have made positive changes in their wider philanthropy that sit beyond just their work within the collective so you know we've definitely seen that we've had very large foundations approach us wanting to join the collective and for us it's not just about that exchange of funding if you want to come to the table you have to come as an equal partner you you can be the biggest foundation in the world but your decision making power is going to be the same as all the other funders around the table that all want to center intentionally girls within their work and so i think that that is a model that we're seeing is at least helping funders to take that learning and that risk-taking step because there is safety in numbers. There's there's safety in nine other organisations that are sort of deciding um, this framework and putting their money where their mouth is that we might not be able to do in isolation as each individual. And I think that that's a way that funders can start as well because saying that they should be more risky, I think, is a, is a bold statement that I know will sit behind lots of responses saying well we can't be because of xyz but i would <laughs> yes. say why don't you share the risk uh, and and join collaboratives that are doing interesting work and really come to the table knowing that you should be learning thank you for that <laughs> I, i've bombarded you with so many questions today <laughs> so i'm going to take a break from questions for myself and actually introduce <laughs> questions from other people so these are questions from other non-profits some of them personally toward you uh, I sort of put a call out there for some people who have actually had dealings with with you and your time in philanthropy and sort of ask what questions would they like to have so cool I, I take no responsibility for these <laughs> questions I can actually absolve myself uh, first question how does relationship and personal connection matter in the context of one-time awards I sometimes worry about trying to build relationships in those scenarios because I don't want to compromise what may need to be an unbiased or more systematic uh, selection process, i.e. the start towards. So I think for that, you know, um, relationships building is really, really important still. Um, but that relationship sits with your referral partners because we only give referral partners a certain number of nominations. So I could come to you, EJ, and say, you know, can you nominate organizations for the With and For Girls Which Awards? you have done. <laughs> which we have done in the past. Um, and we only give you five or ten. And we say, and we might confine your nominations to certain regions. And that's just a, a, a feeling of wanting to be equal you know we get a lot of nominations from sub-saharan africa compared to underrepresented regions in some cases and so there's a very long arduous process to kind of work out how many and which referral partners should nominate 
And then what happens is it really rests with you as the referral partner to be like, okay, from from the organizations that I know that I have either funded or that I want to fund, um, you know, which ones would I love to nominate? Which are the ones that really fit this criteria? And that's where your relationship is really helpful. You can spend a lot of time understanding our process and understanding what we're looking for by engaging with the With and For Girls team. And we are absolutely there to open up that uh, dialogue and that relationship with you. But really, it's about the um, the connection with the referral partner themselves. Um, and what again, what we've seen is when organisations haven't gone through a first time, the fact that they're able to keep in touch with that referral partner, um, they're able to get renominated, or that referral partner might keep them front of mind for other things that are going in within the sector and the space as well. Um, and what I would say around one-time awards, because I think we've been you know, a lot of other donors within the space have really questioned us on like, what's the value of a one-time award? Um, And what I would say is we've worked really hard to try and measure the work that we do that goes on behind the scenes. So of course, our awards are one-time. But what we also do is we share with the permission of the organizations due diligence data on the winners that we have. Um, We give them to other Uh, foundations, other funders that might not have the resources to go through such a long process and to and to be able to get that level of due diligence data that allows them to take that risk. Um, We've measured that and we've seen so many um, of our winners go on to receive multi-year core support from other funders. Um, Again, because we're a collaborative and a collective um, with funders that have their own portfolios, we've seen a number of our winners go into uh, portfolios from a winner. So they might win an award and then become a comic relief grantee after the award has finished for a three-year period. And then also we've been really responsive to the winners themselves. So last year we launched three new funds, uh, which are all secondary funds for our previous winners. And they really followed from feedback that we'd got from winners themselves. Number one being, surprise, surprise, more core support, which we totally (laughs) recognize is absolutely what should be there in the space. Um, But again, we worked with girls, adolescent girls, to be like, okay, well, we want to give secondary core supports to previous winners of the awards. How can we do that in the best way possible? And what we really landed on as as a collective um, was around the organizations demonstrating how the award had forced them or, or, or made them much more girl-led or girl-centered within their approach. Um, and then we had panels of adolescent girls actually assess those applications, um, talk with the organizations, and then come back to us and say, we believe that these organizations have really demonstrated like the values of With and For Girls, and we'd love to give them X amount of uh, more core support. And then the two other areas was... Um, around visibility. So we were seeing that a lot of groups um, wanted to have girls in decision-making seats. They wanted us to provide spaces where girls had seats at the decision-making table that sit beyond what we're able to provide. And so, you know, we opened up a visibility fund for girls to be able to travel to regional, to national, to international meetings. And it's not just about funding. We also give legal and immigration support to the organisations as well, because we recognise how hard it might be for a 16-year-old domestic worker from Mali to be able to travel to New York for CSW. 
and not to say we're able to be successful in all of our attempts, um, but going beyond just funding is also a responsibility that we as funders should take on. How can we enable grassroots organizations to be able to utilize our resources in the best way? Sounds and like then, you're talking about taking a risk. Strange topic. <laughs> and then the third area, which is the most exciting one and probably another shameless plug that you will raise your eyebrows at me because <laughs> I was only allowed never, one. Never. Um, but the collaboration fund really came from us seeing that when we brought uh, award winners together, real magic happened. You'd be a girl-led group in Kyrgyzstan who met a group that was working in Chechnya or working in Nicaragua. And you would be like, wow, this organization is doing such similar work to us. We would love to do more. And so we also have a pot of collaboration funding. Um, the only requirement being that uh, there's obviously a financial threshold. So it's only up to $15,000 at present, but we are looking at, at what we can do better in future years. Um, and then the second criteria is that it has to involve a minimum of two previous award winners. And we've just seen the most incredible projects come out. And, you know, those projects are incredible and exciting, but we also recognize that they are able to do that because we're already giving them core support. They've already got their basis covered in many instances with being able to pay their rent and have people on payroll and to do the activities. And that when they're then able to layer on an additional pot of support that allows them to collaborate the ideas that are generated are just so exciting so there are like girls caravans happening across west africa there's transnational uh, relationships around anti-trafficking between serbia and pakistan so there is just phenomenal projects coming out but we also recognize that it's not just purely about opening up those pots of funding it's about being a organizations being able to have the bases covered so they can take on innovative opportunities as well, which I would again encourage other funders to think about. And uh, so the next question, I feel like sometimes when I read these questions, I uh, feel like Charlie Brown's teacher, like wah, 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 much, <laughs> much easier just speaking free flowing. So I'll try not to uh, mess this up too much so you can get the, the full essence of the question here. But uh, this is for you again. I have had multiple Different people recommend I talk with a donor and write introductions to her, her being you, <laughs> outing you at least that much, uh, but she has never responded. The context was that I was coming through London and the funder who emailed introduced us thought we would be a good fit, enjoying connecting about each other's work. I don't fully understand what the barrier is or why I've gotten total radio silence despite a warm connection and, in my view, parentheses, a pretty well-aligned mission. What should I have done differently to establish a connection here? So first of all, just sorry to the person <laughs> that has been trying to get a hold of me. Uh, I'm really, really sorry. Um, again, I think sometimes it's just, it's not a case of non-alignment. It's just a case of sometimes your email inboxes completely explode um, and you've got a whole bunch of other things going on. Um, requests from your board, issues with your team, um, issues with some of the winners. And sometimes I feel that, you know, whilst you might sit in a CEO or a director position and people think you're just lounging around with your keys to the executive bathroom, you're actually dealing with a lot of shit going on as well. <laughs> um, 
and so all I would say is I'm sure that that person has caught me just at really, really busy times. And that's why I would encourage um, that emails come through to the info app box because then it will go, it, it doesn't just go to a junior member of the team, it hits everyone's inbox. And when you call me out um, on it, then the rest of the team are like, Swati, someone's trying to get hold of you. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, are you able to take this? Or they might know that I'm really stretched at, at a specific moment. Or I might be about to get ready to travel, or I might just come off of it. Well, can we give an example trip? of that? Just because before we started this, you were telling me about the weeks you've spent in the run up to us <laughs> meeting. And can you just sort of replay where you've been the last five weeks? So just over, five weeks. So, over the past five weeks, I've had, I started with a week in India, then a week in New York then a week in Sierra Leone, then another week in India, and then another week in Kathmandu. Um, and while you're doing all those trips, it's not glamorous in any sense, as um, I'm sure those of you that travel a lot from work recognize. Um, I've still got to make sure payroll's happening. I still have to have one-to-ones with my team. I still have to finish reports. I still have to get board papers out. I still have to review timelines for projects and reports. I still have to be answerable and there for my team, uh, for my board members, for the strategic partners that work on the collective. I have to respond to um, interview requests from journalists, from people who are asking questions uh, around the work that we're doing. And so sometimes all of those things are going on, plus you're in those locations with grassroots organizations that you fund, with your team, with strategic partners, and you have to be completely present in that situation. And some of those locations don't have great access to the internet, so you're also offline for huge elements. So you kind of do full days and then evenings. And so that's why I would really encourage that, you know, again, all I can do at this stage is, is apologize for uh, whoever asked the question, but I'm sure there are others as well. I'm by no means perfect. Um, but I would just encourage, please out me on my on the info <laughs> app and one of the team will uh, pick me up on it or they'll be aware of what my own uh, limitations are and, and they would arrange to meet with you with another member of the team. Um, and all of us, we're not in a hierarchy where I have have any more decisions than um, than other members of my team. I might hold more accountability to our board uh, and to external stakeholders, but in terms of access to information, knowledge about what we're doing, any member of my team is just as knowledgeable um, and just as wonderful to meet with uh, as I would be. So I would encourage um, whoever it is um, to just reach out to the organization as a whole because um, my team are a lot more brilliant than I am. <laughs> I doubt that. I think you're all <laughs> equally brilliant. And I will leave you with this, uh, the future. Um, what is something you would like to see philanthropy eradicate or cure in your lifetime? So I think um, the... Philanthropy is really there to look at change happening in communities around the world. Um, and the lens that I come into it is working on human rights. Human rights is around breaking down power structures that are stopping people from accessing and enabling them to really realize their rights and live within full uh, knowledge and um, exertion of their rights. And yet philanthropy is a huge player in reasserting power dynamics. Um, philanthropy by its very means is a center of power. We control decisions around money and resources. Most philanthropy sits in the global north and gives to the global south, which is just relative of um, 
you know, neo-colonial practices. Um, decisions are made more by, I'm sure, guys called Steve than uh, people who are part of those communities. Um, I read a report that actually people of colour in philanthropy only make up 3% of senior executives, uh, whereas they represent communities that are the most affected by some of these issues. So I think one thing that I would love to see eradicated in philanthropy is that if we're truly about shifting power and about breaking down power structures that include things like patriarchy, that include racism, that include lots of capitalist structures where if we don't attempt to break those within our own structures, we're never going to see a change happen. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for all of this. Thank you for joining me today with this. And uh, I'm very happy to have you here in the uh, virtual tour. Thank you so much um, for your time as well and, and for the questions. And thank you to those people who shared their questions as well. Uh, I hope it's provided you a little bit of clarity. Um, and again, just deepest apologies from my end for being unresponsive. Uh, please do try me again. I can't have you leaving with an apology. I think you're doing too much amazing work to be leaving with an apology. So I want to leave with a thank you and say thank you for your time and thank you for your work in the field. I think there are many people who are very honoured to have worked with you and also benefit from your, your insight, your fiery personality, as well as the dedication you've put into the field. Thank you so much, EJ. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful day.